All right, let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord God, for just the time that we can have together to worship you, to gather together, um, to hear your word and be in fellowship, not only together, but with you, Lord. And I just pray your spirit would speak, that your word would speak, Lord God, not of myself, but that, Lord, um, you speak into the lives of your people. We thank you and give you this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard something in your life that you believed to be true that later on you found out was completely false? Right? We can remember those things. Sometimes that we've heard, we were led to believe this was truth, and we later found out it was not true at all, or at least distortions of truth. And I'm sure we've heard a lot of sayings all our life. Some of these sayings are familiar to us, right? How many of you have heard this? An apple a day keeps the doctor away. How many of you heard that one? Did any of your parents ever tell you that? All right, most of you, almost all of you here are Asian parents, so maybe apples was not part of the daily routine, so maybe that doesn't uh, apply to you. But an actual study, they did an actual study, and it shows that there's no real proof or evidence that eating an apple a day will keep the doctor away. Now, I don't know who funded that study. I didn't know you needed a study for that. Apparently, they did a study, and that may not necessarily be true. No basis. How about this one? How many of you heard this one? We only use 10% of your brain. How many of you heard that one before? How many of you have used that on your kids? Right? Some of you may question, well, I think that's probably true for a number of people. But in actuality, they say that while uh, this may appear to be true for some people, we do use virtually every part of our brain. And that while, uh, or at least most of the brain is active almost all the time. So if you've used that on your, on your kids, you can confess, okay, that wasn't true, but it seems like it, okay? How about this one, the five-second rule? How many use this five-second rule as like, this is like your motto, right? Okay, five-second rule. We all know the five-second rule is plenty of time for bacteria to get on your food, okay? The five-second rule only applies if you've had like your second child or your third child, right? The first child you have, right, there is no five-second rule, right? But by the time you get to your second and your third, your five-second rule becomes like 10 seconds, all right? So some of you parents, you realize that, right? You're very protective of your first child. By the time the second child comes around and your third child, you're like 10 seconds on the floor. Ah, you can still eat it. You know, I cleaned the floor yesterday. All right, you can still pick it up and eat it. How many have heard this? A bee dies if it stings you. All right, you've heard that. Well, this is partially true. This is true for honeybees. Honeybees, the stinger is connected to its abdomen. So when the stinger penetrates in and the bee flies out, it actually pulls part of its abdomen. That's why it dies. Right? That's kind of gross, kind of sad. But that's not, that's not true for bumblebees, hornets, and wasps. They don't have the same problem. You're like, okay, that sounds great. How about this one? Dogs are colorblind. How many of you have heard that before? Good news for your dogs. They're not colorblind. Well, okay, they knew that all along, but you didn't know that, perhaps. 
But dogs are actually not colorblind. Recent research has debunked this previous claim or myth. They may just see colors a little bit more dimly, but they are not colorblind. How many of you heard this one? Poinsettias are poisonous. Have you heard that before? Heard that before? In actuality, they're not poisonous. Or at least they said, now I don't know how they got to this, but a 50-pound child would need to eat at least 500 poinsettias to experience illness. I don't know how they arrived to that. But good news, during Christmas time, if your child eats a poinsettia, they're not going to die. Hopefully. Ostriches are known to bury their heads in the sand, right? You, you've heard that. And that, that's, that's perceived that the assumption is that they bury their heads in the sand whenever they're in danger. In actuality, what they can do is they lay down and play dead to avoid the predator. But however, an adult ostrich can fight by attacking with its clawed feet. An ostrich kick is powerful enough to kill a lion. So our perception of an ostrich as kind of cowardly but bears a head in sand, but actually it has a kick that can kill a lion. That's pretty impressive. Blew my mind. I think of ostriches totally different now. How about this one? You've used this. Sugar produces hyperactivity. How many of you heard that? How many of you experience that every day? Well, they say, actually, sugar does not cause hyperactivity, according to studies. Now, some of your parents are like, I want to see the evidence. Right? But apparently, it's a myth. Sugar does not create hyperactivity in your kids. So sorry, parents, it's just you, okay? Here's this one. Cracking your knuckles actually does not cause arthritis. How many of you have been heard that? You've been told that. You crack your knuckles, and they say, no, don't do that. You're going to get arthritis, right? Apparently, it does not cause arthritis. It's just annoying, right, to people, right? Some people can get annoyed by it. So parents will be like, no, don't do that. It's going to cause problems, but really... They just don't want you to hear it, right? But actually, it doesn't cause arthritis. Science throughout history has proven false claims, right? The earth is not flat, right? Um, the earth is not the center of the solar system. That's what a lot of people used to think. And even recent cosmological discoveries have continued to poke holes in the Big Bang Theory. So science even is is uh, finding reasons to debunk a lot of myths and former beliefs. But human history is filled with sayings and discoveries that have either been proven false or distortions of truth, right? Or there's no basis for truth to begin with. And our personal history is no different. Our personal story, our personal history, we've bought into a lot of things a lot of sayings that we thought were true that are completely false or certainly distortions of truth. And we believe them to be true and we may find it difficult to reject it. Right? We heard it and we believed it to be true and we have a hard time being convinced that it's not true at all. How many of you have had conversations with somebody that refused to believe what they believed was wrong, right? They were just stubborn, like, I can't believe it. 
I can't believe it. I'm just going to believe what I'm going to, what I've heard all my life. Well, we may be that person for ourselves, right? We may be that stubborn person that refuses to believe something is wrong. Something isn't true. Because perhaps the most, the most difficult voice to reject is ourselves. I don't know how many of you can relate to that. The most difficult voice to reject is often ourselves. We are the hardest voice to convince otherwise, right? It's hard to convince ourselves because we believe something all our lives. We can be our harshest critic. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you, you are your harshest critic? More than your friends, more than your parents. When you look at the mirror, you are your harshest critic. I mentioned this last week and this week, our self-image often does not allow us to embrace what it means to be created in the image of God, to be created in His likeness. Our self-image does not often allow us to fully appreciate and understand what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And that's why I've been, we've been resting on this passage for a while now. And I've shared this with uh, Friday Night Fellowship that this series of messages to me is one of the more important messages that I've had an opportunity to share with you all. Because in light of what we're looking at in society, what we're facing, and the daily struggles that people have today, this understanding of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. So that's why we've been on this passage for a while, and I said I was going to take my time during this study. Because it touches on a lot of important topics and struggles that many people face. So here's the verse, if you haven't been with us the whole time, that we've been really focused on. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So from the jump, from the very beginning, the Bible declares that God is the inspiration and the model in which we were designed and created. That's amazing. Kind of say that again. God himself is the inspiration and the model in which we were created. That's a, that's a profound, amazing thing to really ponder and think about. But specifically, man and woman together represents the Lord among His creation. That's amazing. As man and woman were created in His image and in His likeness, Together is the representation of God among all his creation. Only in man and woman do we see that God created in his image and in his likeness. It wasn't the animals. It wasn't the planets. While they all speak of God's glory and existence, it's only in man and woman that he created according to his image and likeness. 
And I really, I've said this last week, this brief verse, this brief verse has never been more relevant than it is today in human history. We're living in times when a minority of people are being allowed to determine what is good, what is acceptable. I've mentioned the last several weeks how people have been reduced to being just impulsive creatures without any sense of godly morality or moral compass to guide them. So whereas God is no longer the pattern in which we are to emulate its people themselves. I'm the God. I am the one to determine what is right, what is good, what is wrong, who I am. So we've been seeing how we are the visible representation of God in His creation. We bear His likeness, not to be confused of being gods ourselves. The Bible does not say that we are gods ourselves, but we are created according to His image and likeness, to be like Him, not to be God, right? But we talked about how a couple of weeks ago, how the enemy manipulates our selfish pride. Looks to sabotage and manipulate our selfish pride. Selfish pride causes us to question God, question His existence, question God's authority, right? And question God as the standard bearer, the standard maker. So if, we, if Satan can get us to question God's existence, or even to question God's goodness, question God's authority, then it elevates us to be in the position of being like God ourselves. So we have the authority to say what is good, what is right, how things should happen, right? So if Satan can manipulate our selfish pride, that's the first step. I mentioned how it's ironic that this month is designated Pride Month. And this Pride Month truly embodies man's unbridled, selfish pride. Because see, in the secular world, this month, whoever designated this as Pride Month, it's, it's quite ironic. This month, what does it celebrate? It celebrates the sense of certain liberty. And that liberty says, you can be who you want. Desire what you want. Feel what you want. Identify with what you want. Do what you want because only you can determine who you are. Only you can determine those things. Only you can determine how you ought to feel. They do have it right. That is the ultimate expression of Pride Month. Right? But notice the caveat. They don't say this, but you, only you can determine that unless you contradict the loud voices that are screaming that. Right? You can believe and feel and do whatever you want unless it goes against what we say, then that's not allowed. Right? But there's a loud segment of the population who wants to make you believe that what you feel and think is right, even if it is not good. 
There's a group of who wants to convince you to believe what you feel, what you think is right, even though it may not be good for you. Because if you can believe that, the enemy's got you. So when the enemy can, tries to manipulate our selfish pride, the enemy will attack our self-image. If the enemy can affect how we see ourselves, we have proven to ourselves in our life that we will go through great lengths to find satisfaction, even if it means distancing ourselves from God. Right? Isn't that true in our lives? We will go through great lengths to find satisfaction, even if it means being distant from God. Because we have this need of satisfaction, what we think we need to pursue, and we forsake God. We put God on a shelf for the sake of those pursuits. And I mentioned last week, the, the title of last week's mention was Broken Mirrors. And I don't know how many of you, whether you heard the message or not, I don't know how many of you can relate to this idea of broken mirrors. You have an unhealthy image of yourself because you're looking at a mirror that is broken and distorted and is giving you the only perception you have of yourself is a broken image and a distorted image. And you're convinced of it. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, even you as a Christian, you've accepted Christ, you've asked for forgiveness, but you're still looking at the same distorted mirror, the same broken mirror, and all you see is a broken image, a distorted image. And so you believe that, that that's who you are. We believe these things. So these broken, distorted mirrors keep us from having a healthy self-image and a healthy understanding of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Because we have believed what that image tells us. So I mentioned about broken mirrors last week. But I want to mention about this week. How did our mirrors get broken? How did we get to be so broken? I don't know how many of you can relate to this. Certainly don't raise your hands. Perhaps you have had that moment where you've asked yourself that very question. How did I get so broken? How did I get to feeling this way? What happened? If we were created in God's image to bear his likeness, how did our perception of ourselves become so broken and distorted? And the answer to that question is not a simple one. Now, some Christians will simply say, well, it's sin. It's the fall. It's sin that caused it. It's the fall, but tracing back to the fall. And I'll say, yes, absolutely, that's true. And we'll deal with sin when we get into chapter 3. I promise you we will get out of chapter 1, okay, of Genesis. Okay. Yes, sin is the ultimate root of it. But if we are to experience healing, our answer is more than just we're sinners, we need to repent, be forgiven, and embrace new life. 
Why do I say that? The process of experiencing healing and repairing that image we see in the mirror can be long, it can be painful, and it's always vulnerable. And living it out is often easier said than done. So I don't want to stand up here and just give the simple saying, well, it's because you're a sinner and you need forgiving and ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you and wash you and live life new. So go out and do it. Because many of us in here or many of us maybe watching or listening, you've been Christians all your lives. Or for a number, enough years that, yes, Jesus is your Savior. He is your Lord. You know you have the hope of, of heaven and salvation. But you're still experiencing living this brokenness because of the image you see and you've grown to see and you've grown to accept that this is what you believe is who you are and what you always be. The way we see ourselves and the broken mirrors we use, I believe, became distorted or broken in, in two ways. And maybe this is a little too simplistic, but our mirrors are broken or distorted two ways. One, we break and distort our mirrors on our own, right? I mentioned this a little bit last week. We've broken our mirrors and distorted our mirrors on our own. We looked at it, we compared ourselves to other people. And so we look at ourselves and we compare ourselves to other people and all we see is distortions of what we want to be. Some of those mirrors, we broke ourselves. Others, our mirrors were broken and distorted by others. Other people did it. Mentioned, how did we get so broken? Many of our unhealthy thinking traces back to childhood. Interesting study in child psychology and development, they do research. They talk about adverse childhood experiences, ACE. I'm going to refer to it as ACEs, okay? ACE. Adverse childhood experiences. From the first 18 years of life, they look at adverse childhood experiences. And much research has been done about the effects and the impact and correlation from ACEs, or adverse childhood experiences, to adult mental health and formation. Okay? And so whenever they talk about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, they generally refer to three particular categories of focus. Their first category is abuse. Abuse. It could be emotional abuse. What's emotional abuse? A parent, a step-parent, or adult living in your home swore at you, insulted you, put you down, acted in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt. Okay, that's some specifics about emotional abuse. Physical abuse. A parent, a step-parent, or adult living in your home pushed, grabbed, slapped, threw something at you, or hit you so hard that it had marks or were injured. Sexual abuse is an adult, relative, family friend, or stranger who is at least five years older than you, ever touched or fondled your body in a sexual way, made you touch his or her body in a sexual way, attempted to have any type of sexual intercourse with you. So one of the categories, they look at ACEs, they look at abuse. Emotional, physical, sexual abuse. 
Another category, they, they focus on household challenges. Specifically, the mother is treated violently. Your mother or stepmother was pushed, grabbed, slapped, had something thrown at her, kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, hit with something hard, repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes, or ever threatened or hurt by a knife or a gun by your father or stepfather or mother's boyfriend. It's interesting that particularly how your mother is treated creates an incredible impact on a child's perspective and mental health. Substance abuse in the household. A household member was a problem drinker or alcoholic or a household member used street drugs. Mental illness in the household. A household member was depressed or mentally ill or a household member attempted suicide. Parental separation or divorce. Your parents were ever separated or divorced. Incarcerated household member. Someone in your household was arrested or imprisoned. And then the third category they look at is neglect. Emotional neglect. Is someone in your family never or rarely helped you feel important or special? Let me say this again. Emotional neglect. Someone in your family never or rarely helped you feel important or special. You never or rarely felt loved. People in your family never or rarely looked out for each other and felt close to each other. Or your family was never or rarely a source of strength and support. That's emotional neglect. Physical physical neglect. There was never or rarely someone to take care of you, protect you, or take you to the doctor if you needed it. You didn't have enough to eat. Your parents were too drunk or too high to take care of you. Or you had to wear dirty clothes. So they look at these three areas. The effect of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and its effect on adult formation and mental health. In the U.S., 34.8 million children ages 0 to 17 are exposed to ACEs that can severely harm their future health and well-being. Nearly half of American children are exposed to adverse childhood experiences from zero from birth to 17 years of age. The effects of ACEs can cause what's called toxic stress, long-lasting wear and tear on the body and the brain. So excessive activation of stress response systems on a child's developing brain and immune system, metabolic regulatory systems, cardiovascular systems. So they look at all these things and the effect of possible presence of toxic stress. So they look at it and they do some studies on the effects of these experiences on people. So they've done some studies and they've shown or they've seen that if someone experienced one or two ACEs, so you look at those categories, 
and the different examples of those experiences. Has someone experienced at least one or two aces in their lifetime or in their growing up? Two and a half times more likely to smoke. Okay. Three times more likely to use antidepressants. Four times more likely to develop STDs. So this can tell us that depending on what they use as coping mechanisms at times, they go to these things, okay? For people who experience three or more ACEs in their life, 60% are more likely to experience risk of autoimmune diseases, lupus, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes, They've shown a correlation of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, literally affecting a person's immune system because of the constant presence of toxic stress. People experience four or more ACEs, two and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with cancer or lung cancer, 3.7 times more likely to have anxiety, 4.4 times more likely to have chronic depression. 4.5 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's. 5.6 times more likely to engage in illicit drug use. 5.8 times more likely to have problematic alcohol use. 7.5 times more likely to experience violence, victimization in adulthood. 15 times more likely to attempt suicide. and 1,350% more likely to face opiate abuse. Those who experience five or more ACEs, 76% have delays in their language, emotional, or brain development. They're eight times more likely to have problematic alcohol use. And for those who experience six or more ACEs growing up, 50% more likely to have a shortened lifespan by 20 years. And they're 4,600% more likely to face opiate addiction. So according to different studies, approximately 60% of Americans experience at least one adverse experience during childhood. 60% of Americans experience at least one ACE during their childhood. More than 15% experience four or more. 50% of youth have been assaulted at least once. 26% of children aged four and under experienced a traumatic event. And 16% of youth were sexually assaulted or sexually abused. And that's particularly 14 to 17 year olds. See, these studies provide insight of careful observation. If you have careful observation of life, you realize that your childhood experiences have profound impact on your thinking, your development, your behavior, your attitudes. That's why it should be so alarming for us of the sexualization of children these days. We will get to that shortly in another message. 
So what is left in the wake of the devastation, right? What is left in the wake of that devastation? How many of us still have hurtful memories from early childhood? You don't have to raise your hands. How many of us still have hurtful memories of your childhood? Childhood experiences, right? I think we all do. We can all remember specific moments of when you were teased, when you were bullied, when you were mocked, when you were laughed at. Maybe you were beaten, you were neglected, you were yelled at. I think we can all remember those moments, right? We remember confusing, maybe it's not that, maybe we remember confusing moments of tragedy, family turmoil. And we remember being left wondering, am I the cause? Am I the reason this happened? Maybe you can remember having those thoughts, especially as a young child. Am I the reason? I remember specific moments when I was a little kid, just being around arguments and wondering, is it because of me? Is it my fault? And you see, no one had to teach us how to internalize our experiences, right? No no one taught us how to do that. We seem to have done it automatically ourselves. We internalize these things. If things were happening to us that were not good, that was not our fault, we internalize and say, it's my fault. It must be something about me. I must have deserved this. All this stuff that's happening, all this trauma, all this experiences, is it my fault? Is my parents' divorce my fault? That We know that that's a common a common experience for children. They internalize it as it must be their fault. It happened when this happened in my life, so it must be because of me. We interpret our parents' busyness, right? As a sign we're not worthy of their time. How many of us have thought that before? My parents are so busy, they have no time for me. I've never felt affection for my parents. It must be me. And soon enough, how many people grow up to believe abuse because becomes something that they deserve? Right? Earlier I mentioned the sayings we believe were true that proved to be false? Can you imagine believing all the things that you believed in as a child were true? All the things you believed in as a child, you believed them to be true? All the sayings you, were, you heard, all the treatment, you, you, all the things you said to yourself, you believed to be true. I remember a time when uh, watching Sesame Street, man, they could have said anything on Sesame Street, I would have believed it as a kid, right? All right, these days, people are, hopefully people aren't growing up on Sesame Street these days because it's, it's, it's way off the rails. But I remember when you're a kid, you don't know anything other than to believe what you're being told is true. You haven't learned yet that someone might be deceiving you, might be lying to you. So as a kid, you're so impressionable, you're so gullible, you'll believe anything is true. If you're a parent, you, you realize there's a certain age, there's like this, this, this nice age when your kids will believe everything you say. 
They're so gullible. So you get away with saying something to your kid and you know they're going to say it, they're going to believe it's true. But there's a point in age where they get, where they realize, that's not true. <laughs> I don't think that's right. So that's why it's so alarming today. The impression of children, what is being told, if they're being told something by a teacher or an adult who they haven't learned anything otherwise to not believe them, they believe it as true. It hurts most when the people who ought to love us the most seem to love us the least. Ouch. That hurts, right? It hurts most when the people who ought to love us the most hurt us the most. It seems that they love us the least. And if we're not treated well by the loved ones who ought to love us the most, then why should we feel good about ourselves? See, these are things that kids don't need to be taught to think. These are conclusions we naturally come to. If our parents don't seem to show love towards us, if the ones who love us the most don't show love towards us, then why should we feel good about ourselves to begin with? And why should we even believe God loves us so much? If our own parents, our own family doesn't. As I mentioned, some of our mirrors were broken by other people a long, long time ago. And since then, we've taken it over and we've been holding those broken mirrors ourselves. We don't need other people to hold it up for us anymore. We hold it up for ourselves. And I mentioned last week how the enemy holds up the broken mirror for us until we readily hold it up ourselves. Because if the enemy can convince us to believe in the distorted image, we will accept the image as inescapable truth. We'll begin to justify, defend, reinforce the lies, and soon enough we're holding that mirror so tightly without hope. And we will seek anything to satisfy that feeling, because we don't like the feeling, but it's all we know. And I know many people, they're left thinking, why did God allow these things to happen to me? Right? Why did God allow these things to happen? And I'll be honest and straightforward and say, I wish I could provide a satisfying answer. I don't know if there is one. I don't know if there's a satisfying answer to the question of why did God allow these things to happen to me? Because even if we had some kind of just big purpose in mind, some, there's a part that's just really hard to satisfy, right? Truth is, we live in a broken world plagued with sin. We all experience the consequences of both good and evil in our actions and the actions of others. We experience the consequences of both the actions of ours, others and our own actions, both good and bad. We're both victims and we're also perpetrators. We're not immune to wrongdoing, but we can also be recipients of grace and redemption and forgiveness. 
I know that's not real satisfying, and this is not the end of the message. You know, we're going to continue to talk about this next week. But I don't want to end with this. You may ask, how can we be repaired? Can it be repaired? Can our image be repaired? Those broken mirrors, distorted mirrors. Well, you can, you can react to this in several ways, right? Some people say, well, what's the cure for self-loathing? What's the cure for depression? What's the cure for mental health? And, you know, I think we can respond in, in, to our experiences in a number of ways. Some people may say, they may respond like, I'm okay. Nothing is wrong. Some people say that. I'm okay. Nothing is wrong. In fact, a lot of people will say that, declare it this month. I'm okay with who I am and how I feel, what I want to desire. There is nothing wrong. I will do what I want, feel what I want, think what I want. Some people say, I can handle it on my own. I don't need God's help. I'll figure it out. Right? Some may say, I'm always going to be this way. There are many who are just resigned to the fact, this is how I am. This is how I grew up. I'm just always going to be this way. And they leave it at that. But then there are some who will say, I need to find help. What I'm feeling is not good for me. There's something wrong. And I need help. And you can respond to realize what I need is I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need to discover the healer who can heal me. And you need to be able to say, I won't always be this way. I don't have to always be this way. The broken kid, the one who experienced all those things, the reflection you see from that broken mirror, distorted mirror, I don't always have to think that way about myself. I mentioned last week about having the, the right mirror, to look at the right mirror, not the distorted, broken mirror, but a truthful mirror, the mirror of God's word, who will show you who you are, show you what is wrong, what needs to be corrected, what needs to be forgiven, will speak painful truth, but truth that will lead to freedom and forgiveness and redemption. We also need to find the right therapist and doctor and healer, right? When we have a medical problem or issue, we go seek out a doctor. How many of you can relate to having to find, I know some of you definitely relate to this experience, you had a hard time finding a good doctor who can diagnose you correctly, who hears you, understands what you're going through, and says, let's treat it at its core. Sometimes it's hard to find. Let me end with this verse. Look what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. 
This is one of my favorite verses all time. With all the noise we hear, all the voices shouting at us, all the lies that are swirling all around us, all those lies we grew up in all our life, we need a voice of truth. We need a voice that we can rely on and say, this voice is not going to lie to me. It's not going to pump my pride up. It's not going to humiliate me down low. It's going to speak truth to me. And I think this verse truly represents the heart of our creator, our savior, and our healer. Notice what this verse says. One, Jesus invites us to come to him. He says, come to me. It's not a, well, you know what? If you feel like it, if you're not busy, check your schedule. If you have any time, call me up. No, he says, come to me. He's calling out to us. He says, let him put, any rest, put, put to rest any feelings or thoughts of being unwanted, unloved, too much of a burden, unworthy, or unimportant. He says, you come to me. That's powerful. Any feelings you had even growing up, if this reinforcement thought of, there's no time for me. Who wants to spend time with me? I'm unwanted, I'm unloved, I'm too much of a burden, I'm not worthy. He says, come to me. And then Jesus recognizes our burdens. He says, all who are weary and heavy laden. This is so important. How many of you try to share your burdens with somebody and they dismissed it as, oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's rough. That's tough. I'll pray for you. Right? It's important that Jesus says, you who are weary and heavy laden, I see your burden. I see your fatigue. I see the weight that you bear. You, come to me. He doesn't dismiss it, nor underestimates the weight that it bears on us. This is God, right? What's a burden to God? But he sees your burden. He says, come to me. The third thing this verse says, Jesus desires to relieve us of our burdens. He says, I will give you rest. He wants us to come to him that he may give us relief and rest. We do not have to bear those burdens alone all our lives. Fourth thing, Jesus wants us to learn from him. Notice he says, learn from me. Learn from me. Jesus is the authority for truth. And Jesus must be our authority in which we learn from. Jesus is not going to lie to us. The world will lie to us. Satan will lie to us. He is the father of lies, Scripture says. Hear from Jesus. And notice he says, learn from me. Learning is a process, isn't it? Wouldn't we love to like pick up a book and read it and boom, we have all complete knowledge and be good on our way? 
in math, aren't you always constantly learning? It's summer break for most of you, right? Right? When summer hits, you have unlearned 99% of what you learned. You might have unlearned that once the class was over, right? So you have to relearn. And you learn and you learn. Every day is a process of learning. And Jesus says, learn for me. That word for learning is in present tense, meaning we continually learn each and every day. And when it comes to repairing ourselves, healing, and coming to Jesus and learning from him, it's an everyday process. Some of us here may be so discouraged because we haven't seen the progress we want or we haven't experienced the healing we want or complete healing. I say sometimes it may take a daily lesson every single day. But notice it says Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. He says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This is so important. The harsh criticism you hear in your voice, in your mind, that when you look in the mirror, that harsh voice that criticizes you is not from the Lord. That is not Jesus saying, look at you. Worthless. You can't do anything right. Why don't you give up? You're confused. This is not who you are. Let me be somebody else. That's not the voice of our Savior. He is much more gentler than our voice, praise God. He's gentle and humble in heart. And he says, I will help you find rest for your souls. You shall find rest for your souls. Sometimes that rest may come with a lot of searching. It may come with a lot of learning day by day. There's no set prescription for it. Because we don't all share the same story. We're not all the same people. Our journey of healing and restoration and learning may be different. But our source is the same. The source for healing is the same. I'll end with this. Sorry it's going long. I mentioned, I started off last sermon with uh, an old reference of SNL skit, Stuart Smalley, about daily affirmations. And it was a parody about how some people at the time needed daily affirmations to look themselves in the mirror and tell themselves, you are good enough, you are smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. And that was meant to be a comedy, but in actuality, especially today, that is a daily necessity for many people. Because for many people, that's the only positive affirmation they feel at the time. I'm going to end by saying, you know, that sometimes I don't say this trivially or loosely. What I've experienced in my life, the depths of our despair lead us to appreciate the depths of his love. And I'm just saying this by experience. You take it for leave it. I don't say that to help you feel better about your experiences. I really don't. But what I've experienced 
the depths of my despair truly help me to appreciate the depths of his love. And I want to encourage us to not feel like or resign ourselves that to believe in the image that we've seen all our lives. And this may not be applied to you, and if it doesn't apply to you, praise God. But for those of this does apply to you, I want to encourage you that the mirror that you have believed all your lives that has been toxic for you, it's not the truth. It's not the complete truth. We'll pick up next week. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we come before you. Lord, um, we're living in a hurting time. There's a lot of people who are confused. I think especially of young people. They're led to believe lies that's going to lead them to more hurt and more pain. Some of us as adults have believed certain lies, whether we've told ourselves to ourselves or it's been told to us or maybe the actions that we experienced just reinforced these feelings of hurt and pain. But Lord, that is not your voice. I don't believe it is your truth. And Lord, I pray that you would instill a message of hope in each of us, Lord God. That we can come to our Savior and Lord to be our healer. To help us heal. And to fully understand and appreciate and live out what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.